Good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to April 13th edition of the Heretics Hour with me, your host, Carolyn Yeager. Tonight's topic is about that silly communist government in Greece that is making so much noise about the hundreds of billions they want the Federal Republic of Germany to pay them for what took place between 1941 and 1944. And because of the slant of the news media, the overwhelming sympathy from that corner is for the Greeks, as I see it. What I mean is they are presenting Greece's case in the best light they can, while reminding us at every opportunity that the Nazis, and only the Nazis apparently, committed atrocities wherever they went during World War II. In fact, they were the sole cause of the war. This was proven at Nuremberg. You know that. I just this morning saw an article in the Fiscal Times, which turns out to be a digital news and opinion service headquartered in New York City, owned and funded by Peter G. Peterson, uh, that accuses the Eurozone members of being too rigid in its dealings with Greece, therefore undemocratic. It seems to be saying that if you set rules and won't change them for special cases, that is an expression of German rigidity. This anti-German overlay to news stories about Greece is what is typically found in my experience. My position on this is that the so-called Nazis did nothing wrong to begin with and that further the issue is too old to be brought up now, 75 years later, during which time Greece accepted several agreements on compensation based on their demands. That is, based on what they asked for, they accepted far less in the, in the final agreement. I'll also say that none of Greece's European neighbors agree with their current shakedown of Germany unless they are individual communists who, instead of supporting their own country, support their fellow communist political party, Syriza. Syriza positions itself as the radical left in the Greek political spectrum. As you know, Greece is also facing a huge financial crisis right now, and it is clear to all but the very deaf and dumb that this is the reason for bringing up the old war compensation claims again at this time. I've been following some of the chatter on the internet and noticed that so many of those who call themselves National Socialists and like to ally themselves with the name of Adolf Hitler are supporting the Greeks on this, using the excuse that the current German government is in league with Jews and Jewish banks. Therefore, in their mind, they can be anti-German and anti-Germany and still be pro-Hitler. Andrew Anglin fits into this position. Piss on the Germans, he says. Hail to the Ruskies. Well, I might have more to say about that later, but for now, uh, I just want to get into the program. I decided to study the issue to see just where the Greeks were coming from and if they had any valid arguments behind their demands. There is both the purely legal aspects of this question as well as the perception of justice and fairness. A lot of people are basing their opinions on which party is most sympathetic to them, that is, which side they are drawn to most. As I looked at the Greek arguments, it seems 
what they're basing it on is miles of reports, 400,000 pages, they say, from and about all the so-called victims in Greece that were probably prepared for the Nuremberg and other tribunals without investigating the truth of them. These documents are to be found in the U.S. National Archives, they say. We know how much trash was submitted at Nuremberg for the court's awareness uh, or enlightenment, you might say, and accepted by those tribunals and, and other tribunals, not just at Nuremberg. So what is in the archives can be pretty meaningless, but still it remains to be seen. But another reason for bringing up this reparations issue now is to play to the Greek people at home. The politicians can blame the problems on Germany in that if Germany would pay the money it owes Greece, Greece would be in fine shape. It's their fault. So that's the message that uh, Syriza is giving to its own people and its own voters on the home front. In any case, I'm going to present some information for my research now. Uh, the current Greek state, this is kind of like a brief history of Greece, modern Greece mostly. The current Greek state, which encompasses much of the historical core of Greek civilization, was established only in 1830 following the War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire. Greece is considered by today's world economic standards to be a democratic and developed country with an advanced high-income economy, a high quality of life, and a very high standard of living. What do you think of that? That's, that's what is how Greece is seen and expected to return to once it gets over this temporary crisis. Well, looking at its history, following the pre-Christian classical period, of which I will not speak, the Roman Empire in the East, following its fall in the West in the 5th century, is conventionally known as the Byzantine Empire, but was simply called Roman Empire in its own time. Greece was included in that. The Byzantine Empire lasted until 1453. With its capital in Constantinople, its language and literary culture was Greek, and its religion was predominantly East Orthodox Christian. Most of mainland Greece and the Aegean Islands fell under Turkish Ottoman control by the end of the 15th century. Cyprus and Crete remained Venetian territory and did not fall to the Ottomans until 1571 and 1670 respectively. Now the only part of the Greek-speaking world that escaped long-term Ottoman rule was the Ionian Islands, which remained Venetian until their capture by the First French Republic in 1797. These islands were then passed to the United Kingdom in 1809 until their unification with Greece in 1864. So we see that the Greeks were also under Venetian rule, then French and English. While Greeks in the Ionian Islands in Constantinople lived in prosperity because some Greeks living in Constantinople achieved positions of power within the Ottoman Empire or within the Ottoman administration. Much of the population of mainland Greece, 
suffered the economic consequences of the Ottoman conquest. Heavy taxes were enforced, and in later years, the Ottoman Empire enacted a policy of creation of hereditary estates, which effectively turned the rural Greek population into serfs. So, uh, at this time, under the under Turkish rule, the Greeks were suffering from poor economy, lack of opportunity, heavy taxes, and so on. However, in the 18th century, there arose through shipping a wealthy and dispersed Greek merchant class. These merchants came to dominate trade within the Ottoman Empire, establishing communities throughout the Mediterranean, the Balkans, and Western Europe. Now, these would be wealthy Greek communities. They, this would be perhaps a lot of the, what are considered the elites, the Greek elites, who see themselves as the ones maybe who are not paying taxes today. In the late 18th century, Arrigus Foreos, the first revolutionary to envision an independent Greek state, published a series of documents relating to Greek independence, including but not limited to a national anthem and the first detailed map of of Greece. And he did this in Vienna, published this in Vienna. For this, he was murdered by Ottoman agents, Turks, in 1798. But the unrest continued and finally led to the War of Independence. And what happened was the Ottoman Sultan negotiated with Mehmet Ali of Egypt, who agreed to send his son Ibrahim Pasha to Greece with an army to suppress the revolt in return for territorial gain. Ibrahim landed in the Peloponnese in February 1825 and had immediate success. By the end of that that year, most of the Peloponnese was under Egyptian control. After years of negotiation, three great powers, Russia, the United Kingdom, and France, decided to intervene in the conflict, and each nation sent a navy to Greece. After a week-long standoff, a battle began which resulted in the destruction of the Ottoman-Egyptian fleet. A French expeditionary force was dispatched to supervise the evacuation of the Egyptian army from the Peloponnese while the Greeks proceeded to the captured part of central Greece by 1828. So this takeover by the Egyptians was in 1825 and three years later they had been uh, saved. Things had been turned around by the United Kingdom probably mainly and along with Russia and France. So here the intervention by these powers uh, saved Greece and Greece had to have been quite grateful for that. In the next two years there were negotiations and the nascent Greek state was finally recognized in 1830 under the London Protocol. So this final assignment of Greece as an independent nation took place in London. All these things take place in London. And, you know, it it had the British seal of approval and was uh, signed in London. London was really the leader of the 
of the Western world at this time, and so it certainly uh, it certainly had the ability to exert itself and have things have these things take place in uh, in London. Now we go on with the 19th century, uh, but before this, before 1830, Ionis Capodistrias from Corfu had been chosen as the first governor of the new republic. In 1831, one year after the signing of the uh, protocol of the independent Greek state, he was assassinated. And in the subsequent subsequent conference a year later, the great powers of Britain, France, and Russia installed Bavarian Prince Otto von Wittelsbach as monarch. In 1863, Otto was replaced by Prince Wilhelm of Denmark, who took the name of George I and brought with him the Ionian Islands as a coronation gift from Britain. So, you know, at that time the Ionian Islands were under British control. So we see that it was Britain who all along had the most say in Greek affairs. Britain, as I said, was certainly top dog at this time in most things. So now we have the Greek state established and it's already 1863 with a new ruler who names himself George, very British, right? Not very Greek, uh, George I, and he is actually a prince of Denmark. Hmm. In 1877, Charlaus Tricupus has significantly improved the country's infrastructure. He was some kind of a leader. But corruption and increased spending to create necessary infrastructure, like the Corinth Canal, overtaxed the weak Greek economy, forcing the declaration of public insolvency in 1893, and Greece already had to accept the imposition of an international financial control authority to pay off the country's debtors. Now, this is a really interesting item here, and uh, and this must be paid attention to here. What I find here is that in 1877, a Greek leader, he must have been prime minister or something, because uh, they had a monarchy in Greece, and uh, William of Denmark was the king, but this Trikupis had... In, in the interest of improving the country's infrastructure, which needed to be done, it was it was good things that he was doing, but he spent too much money, overtaxed the weak Greek economy, and forced uh, a, a declaration of public insolvency in 1893 when he couldn't pay the debts that he had taken on. So what happened was probably through the the authority of the British and others, Greece had to accept an international financial control authority in order to to get itself solvent again, just like is happening today. It had gone into too much debt, and it had to uh, it had to take on some new pro- programs. So they needed needed to bring about an international financial control authority over Greece, and obviously Greece accepted it, and they came out of there crisis. The Greek people spoke a form of uh, Greek called demotic and it's kind of a vernacular of most Greeks already before the 11th century 
It was called the Roman language of the Greeks also and divided. Dialects, I guess, were kind of divided into northern and southern. And many of the educated elite saw this demotic vernacular as a peasant dialect, although it's what is pretty much spoken in Greece today. And they were determined to uh, bring back classical Greek or Coin Greek, as it's called, to restore the glories of ancient Greece. And this is uh, the, the same thing that goes on and has been going on in Greece, is referring themselves back to their illustrious past and wanting to be seen as the people who accomplished all those great things in the uh, period before Christ and so on and what we might call well more ancient history and to have the prestige of that but they obviously are not the same people because they're not have never been able to accomplish anything like what the Greeks of of old uh, were able to accomplish. But in any case, we go now to uh, the 20th century and the Balkan Wars as a prelude to World War I. The Balkan Wars were several wars amongst people in the Balkans, different uh, one one nation against another and several nations against someone from outside and so on. And... uh, after these wars were over, the struggle between King Constantine the First and his Prime Minister Venizelos took place in Greece over the country's foreign policy, and this was on the eve of World War One, and it dominated the country's uh, political scene and divided the country into two opposing groups. You had the conservatives and you had the uh, socialists, so to speak. And during parts, but then during parts of First World War, Greece had two governments, a royalist pro-German government in Athens and a Venizelist, that's this prime minister, uh, his pro-Britain government in Thessaloniki. But in 1917, these two governments were united and Greece officially entered the war on the side of the Triple Entente, which was, of course, Britain, France, and Russia. So, as I see it, they they waited until the uh, end of the war was in sight, and they joined in on what they thought was would be the winning side, and they they did pick that out correctly. So that's the usual opportunism that is the guiding principle of small nations. I guess you can't blame them, but they all do it. They look, they don't have the power to determine what's going to happen. So they do look for how they can come out ahead for themselves by being on the right side. And they often switch sides right uh, in the middle or towards the end, too. Uh, Greece attempted further expansion. Now, if, if Greece was the nation that it had been, in its glorious past, it would not be behaving in that way. But of course, as I said, it it isn't. Greece attempted further expansions into Asia Minor, a region with a large native Greek population, after World War I. When World War I ended, Greece then decided to take advantage of what they thought was an opportunity to expand into Asia Minor. 
and it was a region with a large native Greek population at the time. But uh, Greece was defeated in this by, again, the, the Turks in the Greek Greco-Turkish War of 1990 to 1922. And this contributed to a massive flight of Asia Minor Greeks into Greece. Here's what was something that was written about it. I'm quoting, The Greek front collapsed with the Turkish counterattack on August 22nd, and the war effectively ended with the recapture of Smyrna by the Turkish forces. This brought on the Treaty of Lausanne, and the uh, Greek government accepted the demands of the Turkish national movement and returned to its pre-war borders thus leaving East Thrace and Western Anatolia to Turkey. Obviously, this was a defeat for the Greeks. They initiated it, but they they failed. The Turkish victory also brought an end to the occupation of Constantinople by the British forces. So uh, the, the British were um, going along with the Greeks there, and the British also lost out in this battle. And the Greek and Turkish governments agreed to engage in a population exchange so that uh, the Greeks in Turkey would return to Greece and the Turks in Greece would return to Turkey, you know, as, as many of them as wanted to, I guess, or they could encourage to do so. Now, so the following era was marked by instability overshadowed by the massive task of incorporating one and a half million propertyless Greek refugees from Turkey into Greek society, more than a quarter of Greece's prior population. So Greece may have had uh, somewhat somewhere under six million or so, and now one and a half million additional refugees were coming into that country, and this was uh, this created a lot of instability. This is now in the early 20s, and the monarchy was then abolished by a referendum in 1924, and the Second Hellenic Republic was declared. So the people became uh, unhappy with the monarchy. That was in 1924. Now in 1935, Premier Georgios Kondilis abolished the republic and brought back the monarchy via another referendum. Following that, a coup d'etat in 1936 took place the next year, and it installed John Metaxas. Ionis Metaxas, Ionis is, that's how you pronounce it, is John in Greek. Uh, so Metaxas is a famous name that many are would be familiar with and he became the head of a dictatorial regime known as the 4th of August regime. Although a dictatorship, Greece remained on good terms with Britain and was not allied with the Axis. So here we say we you know can see that um, Greece remained in the British camp all this time. It was used to being there and it felt that the British were on its side. It was at the Putsch in Belgrade in March 1941 that toppled a pro-German Prince Paul and installed a pro-British figurehead. So this this was the problem between Germany and Greece. 
But in, before that, in October 1940, Mussolini invaded Greece without consulting their German ally and demanded its surrender. But the Greek administration refused, and in the following Greco-Italian War, Greece repelled Italian forces into Albania, giving the Allies their first victory over Axis forces on land. This is the great defeat of Mussolini after his rather rash attack on, on Greece, surprise attack, you might say, sudden attack on Greece, trying to bring about some big victories for himself uh, to compare with what Germany was doing and had done, but it failed. And um, we know what happened at that time uh, then uh, Germany had to go down there and straighten things out. You know, Germany was at war now with, with Britain, and this Greek victory against the Italians was exuberantly praised by by the British and most prominently by Winston Churchill, who made a big deal out of it. Naturally, he would. And Charles de Gaulle also, who was in London uh, in exile, you know, at that time, also was uh, giving great praise to the Greeks and their for their heroism and so on and what great... Uh, Bat, uh, soldiers they were and bringing up the uh, comparing it to the battle of Salamis in the Greek glory days and uh, this was all just propaganda baloney but it turned the Greeks into heroes uh, and you know people were seeing them as having done a, a magnificent thing and, and uh, that remains today this idea that Greeks are associated with that heroic past, of, as I've said, and Greeks themselves want to believe that and put that idea forth themselves, use that themselves a lot, and their supporters do too. But the Germans went uh, down there to to do what the Italians failed to do, even though that was not their plan, it was not their idea to, to attack Greece even. But since the uh, Italians had done so, they uh, felt they had to complete the job. So, And also, what had happened was that uh, Prince Paul of Belgrade had been, uh, had been dethroned by, well, you can say, they can say what they want, who they were, but it was really the British. And so they saw there was a problem down there, and they needed to pacify this whole area. So um, they dispatched German forces to to Greece as well as uh, Yugoslavia and took over both all of that area and Greece fell to the Germans and of necessity the Germany occupied the administration of uh, Athens and Thessaloniki while other regions of the country were given to Germany's partners the Kingdom of Italy and Bulgaria so these two countries also carried out what are called harsh occupation in Greece. But where are the demands for reparations from these particular fascists, you know, as they're called? Why aren't they being called on to uh, pay uh, all these reparations with interest as the Germans are? But anyway, the story goes that the occupation 
brought about terrible hardships for the Greek civilian population. Over 100,000 civilians died of starvation, it is said, during the winter of 1941 and 42. Well, that was the worst winter in modern history, I think, in Europe. And uh, it was very bad for Germany, too. And it was bad for the German troops in Russia, in Western Russia. And it was, it's known to have been a terrible, terribly, unusually cold, bitter winter. So who knows what, who knows about any of these figures? But who knows what they all died, why they died from starvation during a winter like that? Um, a lot of people had a hard time during that winter and probably many, many, many died. They also say that more died because of reprisals by Germans and their allies and collaborators, but the only ones we ever think about are the Germans. Well, I've got some information on that coming up here, but tens of thousands is possibly correct, but it's like 70,000. 70,000 supposedly died in reprisals. Um, I don't know how well documented that is. Uh, and also, the, they uh, complained that the economy was ruined and the great majority of Greek Jews were deported and murdered in concentration camps. Well, that's two different things. The economy was ruined. And then they go on to the Greek Jews who were deported and put in concentration camps. Only Greek Jews were put in concentration camps, as Jews, as was happening to Jews everywhere where Germany had occupied the area. So that's a whole different issue in my mind and is, is nothing to be, is nothing for the present day Greeks to be complaining about. So now as to the reprisals, they were because of active resistance that was being instigated by the country's communists and a few non-communist uh, nationalists, of course, but if Greece had cooperated, like say the Czechs did and the French did, well, nothing would have happened to them. It would have been like in those countries. But they they didn't cooperate. They were like Poland, and so they had a, a harsh time as Poland did because they kept fighting and wouldn't wouldn't uh, accept that they had been defeated, and they had to uh, go along with the. Uh, victors for the time being. So what we have is, as it is said, it is said in this way, the Greek resistance, one of the most effective resistance movements in Europe, fought vehemently against Germany and its allies. This is this is fully admitted and they're, they're proud of it. So they're called one of the most effective resistance movements in Europe against uh, the nationals, against the, the German Wehrmacht at that time, and they fought vehemently against Germany on their on their territory when they should have accepted the German control uh, because they couldn't do anything about it, but they wanted to create a guerrilla resistance to it. And they committed atrocities against the Germans, and this is also admitted, and, and they're proud of that too. They committed these atrocities, the Greek guerrillas did, on the uh, German occupying forces, or force, and they killed and maimed and uh, 
tortured a lot of people, did a lot of awful things, ambushes and so on. They carried out. And so the Germans retaliated with mass executions and also the destruction of towns and villages in Greece because some of these places, they were all all a part of the Greek resistance in some of these towns and villages uh, that they... Uh, would destroy so the people couldn't go back there and and uh, start resistance at that point all over again. Now here are some exa- here are the examples of what they say adds up to the tens of thousands. Now this is what we find in Wikipedia as the most infamous examples of German atrocities and brutality in Greece. There are se- there are a few examples here I'm going to give you. The first one is the village of Komeno on 16th August 1943, where 317 inhabitants were executed by the 1st Gebirgs Division and the village was torched. Number two, the Holocaust at Vianos on the 14, on 14 to 16 September 1943, the following month, in which over 500 civilians from several villages in the region of Vianos and uh, Era Petra in Crete were executed by the 22nd Luftlande Infantry Division. Now, you need to realize that these events did not take place simply because the Germans didn't like the Greeks or hated them or wanted to harm them. These events took place as um, retribution in order to put down the, this very violent Greek resistance that was going on. Number three, the massacre of Kalavrita on 13 December 1943, in which Wehrmacht troops of the 117th Jaeger Division carried out the extermination of the entire male population and the subsequent total destruction of the town. And number four, the Distomo massacre, as it's known, on the 10th of June, 1944, where units of the Waffen-SS Police Division looted and burned the village of Destomo in uh, Boetia, resulting in the deaths of 218 civilians. And then, finally, the Holocaust of Kedros on 22nd August, 1944, in Crete, where 164 civilians were executed and nine villages were dynamited after being looted. Well, I added those up, and they added up to a little over 1,000, I think 1,100-something. So that's uh, not tens of thousands yet. But they go on to say, In the course of the concerted anti-guerrilla campaign, hundreds of villages were systematically torched, and almost one million Greeks left homeless, they say. Maybe they were already homeless from the time they came from Turkey. (laughs) I don't know. In total, the Germans executed some 21,000 Greeks, the Bulgarians executed 40,000, and the Italians executed 9,000. Those are the numbers that come down to us on Wikipedia. Well, this last one had to occur shortly before uh, the Germans actually left Greece, in 1944 because of the landing of the of the allies in Sicily and 
And uh, so now we go to the end of the war. After the their liberation, the Greeks devolved into a polarizing civil war right away between communist and anti-communist forces. So uh, once they got rid of the Germans and the looks like the Allies were on their way to victory, they started fighting among themselves because they had now this huge communist element and then you had those who didn't like the communists and so they began that you the big battle started between those two groups of Greeks and this led to economic devastation and severe social tensions between rightists and largely communist leftists for the next 30 years that would take us to 1975 so you know what was more devastating to Greece was it what the Germans did or was it what they did amongst themselves which is admitted brought about uh, economic devastation and social breakdown Uh, so you know I would say it's the, the latter and Uh, In the meantime, uh, in 1967, on the 21st of April, there occurred that coup d'etat by the regime of the colonels. They set up their new government, which was called the regime of the colonels. On 20th July 1974, as Turkey invaded the island of Cyprus, this regime collapsed. So it went from 67 to 74, and that was about the end of the time of the the fighting between the communist and anti-communist forces. And the uh, following 20 years, that would take us to 1995, were characterized by marginalization of the left in the political and social spheres. So the the left was losing out then. Uh, They were becoming more and more marginalized. People were rejecting that, as was happening all over the world, uh, but also by rapid economic growth propelled in part by the Marshall Plan. Now, uh, we're going to get a little bit more about this Marshall Plan coming up, but right now I need to say a little bit about the politics. Andreas Papandreou founded the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Movement known as PASOK, P-A-S-O-K, which is one of the, which is a major political party today. And this was in response to the, a conservative party, uh, by, uh, Karamanlis, Karamanlis Conservative New Democrat, New Democracy Party, sorry, which is also one of the major parties today. So these two political formations alternated in government since that time. And Greece rejoined NATO in 1980. So Greece was incorporating itself into the new prosperity and, and uh, new day, you might say, in uh, Europe. And it became the 10th member of the European communities on January 1st, 1981. And this ushered in a period of sustained growth. Widespread investments in industrial enterprises took place from other countries and into heavy infrastructure, which they needed, as well as funds from the European Union and growing revenues from tourism, shipping, and a fast-growing service sector. 
This raised the country's standard of living to unprecedented levels. So, you know, this was a time of prosperity uh, all around. I mean, I know from the 60s and through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s when it really went sky high, like as far as the stock market was concerned, uh, this was a time of boom, boom after the after the war time. And Greece was experiencing benefits from all of that uh, without and, and had thrown off its communist uh, mantle and so on. So this this was going on really until until the uh, crisis of 2008, the, which started a big recession. And uh, this has been, uh, and Greece has been involved in the, in the European sovereign debt crisis from that time on. And their own crisis became acute in 2010, the Greek debt crisis. Now the, uh, a little more on the politics. Uh, since the restoration of democracy, the Greek two-party system has been dominated by the liberal conservative new democracy, which I already mentioned, and the social democratic pan-Hellenic socialist movement, PASOK, which I also mentioned. And other significant parties on the scene were the Communist Party of Greece, known as the KKE, the coalition of the radical left, that is Syriza. Syriza is the coalition of the radical left. And the popular orthodox rally, which is, I guess, the church clerical type party, and the popular association known as Golden Dawn. I don't know, I didn't know that their real name was the popular association. That's the political parties on the scene at this time. And so we go on to the Eurozone. Greece was admitted into the Eurozone in 2001. In early 2010, it was revealed that through the assistance of Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Morgan Stanley was involved also sometimes, and numerous other banks. These are U.S. banks, aren't they? At least um, they're international, but they're... They're headquartered in the U.S. Financial products were developed which enabled the governments of Greece, Italy, and many other European countries to hide their borrowing. Is this an, is this an instance of the United States uh, trying to control the European Union, or interfering in it? Well, maybe. Banks supplied cash in advance in exchange for future payments by the governments involved and in turn, the liabilities of these governments were kept off the books. In May 2010, the Greek government deficit was again revised because this information had come out, and it was estimated to be 13.6%, which is way too high over what's supposed to be like around 6% or something as a top number. In May 2010, again, the other Eurozone countries and the IMF agreed to a rescue package, which involved giving Greece an immediate 45 billion euro in loans with more funds to follow, which for that particular rescue package ended up totaling 110 billion euro. But in November 2010, 
The EU statistics body Eurostat revised the public finance and debt figures for Greece following an excessive deficit procedure methodological mission in Athens. A mission went to Athens to deal with the excessive deficit that they were that they were still having and put Greece's 2009 government deficit at 15.4% of GDP and public debt at 126.8% of GDP, making it the biggest deficit among the EU member nations. So they're trying to get accurate figures of the real situation, the real condition of Greece. And they had given it, done this bailout with conditions and so on. But now in 2011, that was in 2010, now in 2011, it became apparent that the bailout would be insufficient. And a second bailout, amounting to 130 billion euro, was agreed in 2012, subject to strict conditions, including financial reforms and further austerity measures. Now, it sounds like the conditions weren't all that strict with the first bailout, and they, for some reason, just thought that with some additional money available, the the Greeks would get themselves out of there deficit situation, their extreme deficit situation, but they didn't. So now they're giving them even more money than the first time, a little bit more, And but this comes along with uh, what they call strict conditions and financial reforms and austerity measures. There were some austerity measures in the first one, but they've got further ones now. And as part of the deal, there was to be a 53% reduction in the Greek debt burden to private creditors, they had to bring they had to bring their deficit down over fifty percent. And any profits made by eurozone central banks on their holdings of Greek debt are to be repatriated back to Greece. This seems to counter the what's said that the banks are just making money off of Greek debt. Well, they originally did, I suppose, but now uh, they created a, some kind of a rule. That if they had, if there are any profits by these uh, on their holdings of Greek debt, they have to give that back to Greece. A team of monitors was going to be based in Athens to ensure agreed reforms are put into place, and that's this troika that the uh, Syriza party complained so bitterly about. This did happen, and this uh, team of monitors were sent to Athens to stay there and watch over things. Very, very similar, isn't it, to what I talked about earlier that took place in uh, in the late uh, 1800s for Greece because they overspent and couldn't handle their couldn't keep their finances in uh, you know under control. So now this uh, troika was there in Athens uh, to to put this uh, program in place and then three months worth of debt repayments are held were to be held in a special account what what they were required to repay they had to keep three months of it all the time in a special account so that they wouldn't come up totally empty now it says that Greece achieved a primary government budget surplus in 2013. This is the official story here. 
And uh, so they were making progress under this program. And in April 2014, Reese returned to the global bond market as it successfully sold $3 billion worth of five-year government bonds at a yield of 4.95%. They wouldn't be able to do that now. Greece returned to growth after six years of economic decline in the second quarter of 2014. And it was the Eurozone's fastest-growing economy in the third quarter. Well, they were making progress under this austerity program, but then what happened? What happened was that Syriza came along with their usual commie promises, their failure to convince anyone that the debt is not their fault, to the people that they were being mistreated and abused and misused and that debt was not their fault. It was the fault of the these, this Troika and the IMF, etc., etc., which were there to help them, even though they dealt with all these damn Jewish-controlled banks, that's true, but we know the Jews took over uh, banking in the world uh, a long time ago, and that's not really the issue here. What What's at issue is that the Greeks are now demanding compensation for what took place during the war, which could be seen as normal conditions and sufferings of war that many people went through, but they're now saying, well, this amounts to about the same as what we're in debt for now, and so we should be getting this money back. Of course, they don't connect it. They say it's not connected, but of course it is connected. (laughs) It brought it up at the same time. And there also, another issue with this is that they're bringing up is this forced loan, and they make it personal by saying it was Hitler who who demanded it, and the money was loaned to Germany, And but Hitler said that it would be paid back, and Hitler started paying it back before the war ended and they couldn't do that anymore. So this has now, for some people, this loan, while they dismiss the reparations issue, they say, well, this forced loan was real and Germany needs to pay back this loan with interest, which amounts to quite a bit with interest, but uh, still not enough for for Greece to be made whole again, so that would this just alone wouldn't be enough if it was paid back the way they would like it to be. This was the thing that I thought I needed to look into to find out if there was really any validity about this loan and what what was going on with this loan. Uh, I didn't know any background on it, so this is what I've looked into now and what I've discovered is that, well, basically this whole business about what Germany owes has no legal basis and is done for the purpose of playing to the Greek people politically to help the the Syriza party shift the blame for the problems that Greece is having and that they're not going to be able to solve, as they promised they would, onto the Germans. So let's we're going to I'm going to take a, tell you what I found out about this loan next. We know that the German I believe it is the economy minister has called Greece's demand for 278 billion over over that amount actually billion euro in compensation to Greece today as stupid and this offended the Greek representatives and the Greek finance office. 
But there's one thing that also has to be remembered here, although people want to make it into the opposite of what it is, is that of the 240 billion euro bailout that has kept insolvent Greek economy afloat since 2010, Berlin has provided the bulk of this money. This money is is mostly coming from Germany, but this only makes the Greeks resent Germany more and uh, dislike the Germans. And, and another thing is that one of the largest industries in Greece is tourism, and Germans are the number two destina- uh, yeah, destination of tourists to Greece. From uh, Of all, the British are number one. Be- and Europe, the majority of, of Greek tourism comes from Europe and uh, other Europeans. And other Europeans are those who are helping out Greece since in these two bailouts. They've also supplied part of the money, uh, not Britain, because Britain is not in the Eurozone, but other Eurozone members. And this is very much like uh, Greece biting the hand that feeds it. That's the type of thing that is uh, so common of people who are in that position and people who are on the left. Well, to go into what the claim is from the Greeks about the loan, uh, the Deputy Defense Minister... Costas Isichos, who was born actually in Buenos Aires and raised in Canada, for whatever that's worth, he said that Athens had a very detailed documentation to back its claim about everything. This is where he says they have the 400,000 pages of records from the U.S. National Archives chronicling all these alleged, I call them alleged, he doesn't, atrocities committed by the Third Reich. He says that they range from reprisal executions, which actually are legal, to the pillaging of the country's cultural heritage. Uh, now, when, when did the Germans pillage the country's cultural heritage? R- recently, when Cyprus was in Russia, Putin made a big deal out of giving him, as they call it, returning some uh artifact they had there which had been supposedly stolen by a German soldier that they got hold of but they didn't show a picture of it and probably some little tiny thing I don't know this might be an example of the pillaging of the country's heritage there's an awful lot of uh, Greek sculpture in in the museum that I saw in London they the Greeks would like to have some of that back too but they don't get it so there you go um, and in, uh, also along with pillaging the, the country's heritage this loan they mentioned this was a crime because this forced loan for what they consider to be 10.3 billion that would be in today's in today's money I suppose which was extracted from the Bank of Greece to fund Hitler's Africa campaign Experts will also be scouring historical archives obtained from Russia. So Russia's opening its archives up to the Greeks, and they say they're going to find things there, too, to blame on the German for uh, why they need to pay money to Greece. The opposition parties in Germany, which are the Greens, the Green Party, and the far-left Die Linke Party, are saying that Berlin should honor the debt. You know, they're not on the side of... They're not saying what the German government is saying. 
they're on the side of their uh, Syriza. And uh, they say Berlin should repay the forced loan that Nazi Germany took from the Bank of Greece in 1942. That's all. They say the rest of it then they, you know, should go to some arbiter or whatever about the reparations. But they say that the loan should be repaid. They're in Germany saying this. Isichos said that, well, you know, we need to get this compensation from Germany, but it doesn't have to be in the form of money. It could be in the form of German companies investing in Greece and providing jobs. And he cited the example of Krupp's which had been part of the industrial military complex, they say, of Nazi Germany, and it continues to provide services in Poland. So they think, uh, you know, they would like to have some of this treatment that Poland is getting some of these special favors, uh, even up till today, uh, based on what took place back then. This minister says... Greece was ordered to pay $528 million by Adolf Hitler, which is equivalent to what he says, $7.1 billion now. Then they bring up, for explaining this, they bring up naturally a Greek academic who wrote a doctoral thesis in 2002 when he wasn't a PhD yet. See, this was his thesis at the University College London. So he's he's in Britain, educated there, and he says uh, that this loan weakened the currency and aggravated inflation in the Greek economy because the Bank of Greece was forced to issue inflationary notes to cover these extraordinary expenses. He has applied compound interest to this sum to reach $54 billion. 54 BU, it says. Hmm. Now, the trouble with the Greek stance is that by the end of the war, this is some criticism of it, Germany was broke and in huge debt. It was not only unable to pay outstanding loans, but also unable to pay the reparations many countries wanted to cover the cost of damage that they had in their countries, supposedly damage wreaked by the Wehrmacht. For, uh, what about, you know, never is there any anything said about the incredible damage in Germany, the most damaged country of all, because it was Germany was blamed for starting the war, so they don't get any any reparations for what happened to them. Nobody <clears throat> bats an eye on that. Well, France wanted reparations, and so did the Benelux countries, and so did Britain. They all wanted reparations from Germany, and Russia too. Uh, but Russia is not in, included in the money that these countries got, but not from Germany, but from the United States. The United States had come to the conclusion that punishing Germany, Japan, and all the Axis nations uh, would trigger a return to fascism. So it stepped in with large sums of cash from 1945 onwards to help these countries. And in 1947, this was turned into the Marshall Plan. So it's saying that what happened here is that the United States became the keeper of post-war Germany. They determined what Germany could and could not do, and it was the United States that didn't want Germany to be hounded for money. It, it didn't have, and it didn't want to, to have Germany destroyed like it was practically after World War I. So it took over the payments to the European claim holders itself, and that became the Marshall Plan. 
I would say that the United States wanted Germany to be held responsible to history and to the world for World War II, for causing it, for being responsible for it, and also for committing all the worst atrocities to uh, let itself off the hook and Britain and, and the other allies and even Russia. It was wanting to leave Russia off the hook uh, in the beginning and for actually even up to today. So they wanted Germany to be able to be blamed for all of this forever, but they didn't uh, want Germany to be destroyed, so they didn't want uh, Germany to be held liable for all this, this endless amounts of money that people wanted from them. So <clears throat> that's the way it was done. Everybody accepted it. And Greece was a beneficiary of the Marshall Plan, a big beneficiary of it. The sums were so large that they replaced the money due from Germany and more. So they don't, we don't know how much they got, but, uh, they got a lot. They all got a lot. And Washington was, seemed to have been, uh, rolling in dough at that time and uh, never ran out of it. So the debt was repaid by the United States, and the United States said so too. Now, Vetsopoulos, this uh, Greek who wrote this doctoral thesis, he points out in his thesis that much of the problem for Greece then, and it is probably true today also, is that the money was wasted. The money that the Greeks got from the United States and from the Marshall Plan was wasted. He says, first, because they descended into civil war after 1945, when the other countries were busy rebuilding. Instead of rebuilding, they were fighting the civil war. And then from 1947, when that settled down, there was so much corruption in public life and a sluggish business sector that uh, much of the money went unspent, or at least it was not spent on investment to retool their economy, which was at that time largely agricultural. So this is the Greeks' fault for not taking advantage of the situation at the time and wasting. And this is what we find, we're going to find all the time when we read about Greece and we look into what they're doing, they're just wasteful. That's what they are. So the point is that no one extracted any money from the Germans after the war. They say, but yet I say, my God, they took everything they could lay their hands on. The Americans did. They they got plenty uh, that was of value that gave them a head on everybody else. And that's why they had so much money, because they had all the intellectual content of Germany. What was in the eastern zone, in the eastern part, that east what became uh, East Germany, uh, the Russians took. They carted whole factories and so on, off to uh, the Soviet Union, uh, intact, and, you know, then studied everything that was there. And the British got some, the French got a little bit, but mostly it was the Ameri- Americans got the most, and then the, the Russians got a lot too, and it was all worth uh, billions and billions of dollars for future development. And uh, so you can't say that Der- Germans didn't pay. They did pay big time. There is an expert at Forbes, uh, in the Forbes uh, magazine, that has written an article about the forced loan. He says, uh, the issue of the forced loan. 
Another legal issue that has surfaced concerns the 476 million Reichsmarks lent against its will to Germany by the Greek National Bank during the war. If this were to be considered a form of war damage, then in principle it would be subject to reparation, except that, according to the 1990 treaty, Germany would not have to pay it. If the money were, however, to be considered a normal credit, then Greece would be entitled to get the money back. Well, see, then he says, see, even this is problematic because there's a catch-22 situation there. If, if they can show that the money was stolen, then it doesn't have to be paid back. If it was, I think they mean by stolen that, uh, he means, uh, that if, if it being a forced loan, if, if, uh, the, uh, the Germans just said, if Hitler just said, uh, I'm taking this money out of your bank and we'll, we'll pay it back, um, then that would be like stolen. But he says if it's a normal credit, well, inflation of a zero, uh, interest loan has been such that Germany could pay it all back tomorrow without breaking a sweat. So if it was, um, 476 million without interest, well, that would be easy to pay back the whole thing. What he's saying, so then that wouldn't improve the Greek situation one bit. So he says that proving that it was a simple commercial transaction, but then arguing that it was under duress, which is why no interest was charged, is a very difficult thing for them to do. He said it's a tough needle to thread. That is, it, you know, there it is. Was it? If it was a simple commercial transaction that was made, then it would have to be paid back. It should be paid back. But it wasn't that because it was uh, it was under duress and it was a forced loan and there was no interest on it. So what have you got there? You don't have, but they're applying interest to it anyway. See, now that's one thing. The Greeks have brought up court of equity where you can go and simply say, look, it doesn't matter what the law is, this is just unfair, and we demand justice. And the court will then consider matters on the basis of whether it is really fair or not and propose remedies based on fairness, not on the jot and exactness of the law. But the law is that this simply doesn't exist at the international level. And he says, we simply do not hold sovereign nations to such standards. If we did, then the private sector bondholders would have a claim against Greece itself for the retrospective change in the collective action clauses that enable the massive haircuts on the debt a few years back. So if there were such courts on the inter- concerning international law, then it would work against Greece also. So he says that is, is for the reason that Greece is pursuing this is really for Greek, Greek domestic politics. That's what this uh, writer in Forbes magazine comes to the con- conclusion of because they don't have any, it doesn't really make sense legally. He says the, the more the electorate believes that it is Germany's fault for not paying up, then the stronger the support for Syriza's no austerity ideas are of how to deal with the crisis. So this is one way of Syriza supporting its own program with the with the voters. And in the Christian Science Monitor, they've written about it, and they conclude that uh, when it comes to actually getting the money 
Many experts say Greece doesn't have a legal leg to stand on. And in Time Magazine had some interesting information about it. In 2011, this was written about already, because it was it was brought up already. I wasn't aware of it, but they, they said that, that what happened to Greece was bad and was too bad and so on. Um, and then they brought up the, uh, the loan that the Third Reich forced the Greek National Bank to lend, saying it was 476 million Reichsmarks, interest-free, and that after Germany's surrender, the Allied powers organized the Paris Conference on Reparations in the fall of 1945 already, and it, it lasted until 1947 when it came to its conclusions. And at, in this conference, Greece laid claim to $10 billion, uh, or half the amount of the $20 billion that the Soviets suggested that Germany should pay. <laughs> yeah, and at the Paris Conference on Reparations, that was in 53, Greece was finally accorded 4.5% in material German reparation and 2.7% in other forms of reparations. Practically, this meant that Greece received mainly material goods like machines made in West Germany worth approximately $25 million, which in today's money amounts to as much as $2.7 billion. However, the stipulations made at the Paris Conference were all but irrelevant given that the U.S. opposed heavy economic penalties and the U.S. leaders recalled this is where they talk about how they recalled what happened after World War One because of the massive claims against Germany and weakening the country economically. It it, it was uh, it resulted in the rise of Hitler. They say well, they didn't want that to happen again, so they agreed that under the terms of the 1953 London Debt Agreement, reparation payments were put off for Germany until a peace treaty was signed. And that peace treaty, they call it that, was signed in 1990. And at that time, it didn't require Germany to pay further reparations to other countries like Greece. So at that, you know, um, when that took place, they still, did, they said Germany didn't have to pay reparation, any more reparations. And that was signed by everyone. Anyway, Greece accepted the treaty, although clearly it had little choice. They say, of course it didn't. Um, now, after having decades of partnership with Germany, Greece has been a member of NATO since 1952 and associated with European organizations since 1961. It would have been politically difficult to demand huge reparations, although the issue of com- compensation was periodically raised by Greek politicians, mostly to score points in domestic politics. So that's it. It's for the home front, and we shouldn't take it so seriously. It's really a political thing that the Greeks use to make points for their political parties and their programs that they're trying to convince the voters to prefer. And now here's a little something about the 1947 Paris Peace Treaty. Uh, There were other countries had to pay reparations as part of this peace treaty. And this this was the one that ended in 1947. And uh, while Germany was not 
required to pay anything because they had so much against them. And the United States had taken over. And actually, Germany was not a sovereign state. And it's still not a sovereign state, although they try to say it became sovereign in 1990, but it didn't. And Germany is uh, was not a sovereign nation then. It was run by the United States. And the United States was in charge of it. And they said, no, we're, none of these claims are going to be made against Germany. Because uh, they they were getting everything from Germany, and they were using Germany, and they still are. And they take care of everything in the name of the U.S. Uh, and its largesse, rather than having it come from Germany. That's really what's going on there. But in Italy was required in that, that peace treaty of 1947 to pay $360 million. Let's see, they had to pay it to Yugoslavia, Greece, Soviet Union, and Ethiopia, and Albania. Now, all those, it was divided between those. And Finland was also required to pay $300 million, uh, all to the Soviet Union, and they paid that off in 1952 in one lump sum. And Hungary was also required to pay 300 million and uh, to um, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. There most of it went to the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was getting every little dime they could get out of all of this. Uh, you can see that what they usually got the most. <clears throat> and the uh, Romania was also also had to pay 300 million to the Soviet Union. And then Bulgaria had to pay only seventy million. Why is that? They had to pay forty-five million to Greece and twenty-five million to Yugoslavia. Now Bulgaria executed the largest number of guerrillas. I think theirs was—I uh, forget the number—but it was more than what Germany had was said to have done. Then why are they held for so little? To Greece, I don't get it. See, I don't get it at all. The, some of the, you know that you can't believe half of this stuff. You usually can believe the money, but I mean, if they don't pay as much money, then they probably weren't, weren't considered to have done as much damage. But anyway, those countries which were all kind of allied with Germany at one time or another, none of them were allied with Germany at the end of the war. Uh, they had all jumped ship, but uh, they had to pay these amounts to make it look right. Now, my belief is that Germany, this would be a great opportunity right now for Germany to make a decision, uh, or at least a, a, a number of people in Germany, to make the, the decision to stop blaming their own National Socialist Germans of the past for terrible crimes, which they, the people of Germany today, will have to pay for or continue paying for. You know, if they accept responsibility for all historic acts of German governments, it's time they begin defending all German governments that were elected and supported by the people for the sake of Germany now and in the future. These governments, let's say the National Socialist government, was elected and supported by the people. It was not uh, stolen from Germany. It was a part. It's a part of German history. And if they're going to accept it, accept the well, the costs of what the world wants to put on 
that government, then they should start trying to speak better of it. They should stop attacking their own people and then having to be responsible for what they're forced to pay for them. But they have been had to they had to do that under U.S. control. But at this point, they need to uh, would be nice if they would start changing their tune a little bit. So to sum up what I've found, it turns out that there is no legal basis or legal grounds for Greece to claim the money that it's claiming, either in the reparations or in the loan, the, the so-called forced loan that it wants to get reimbursed for. So why are they doing it then? Do, do they not know that? Well, one reason is simply to gain sympathy and to get attention, uh, to distract attention away from their own irresponsibility with money and the fact that they have gotten into the position they've gotten into with all this incredible debt that they have really no no way to pay it back on their own and draw attention away from that and put attention on how they've been mistreated historically and how Germany which is the of course the the one demanding that the rules be followed in the Eurozone because otherwise all the money that's going to be shelled out to keep supporting countries that aren't uh, living up to their responsibilities is most of it's going to come from them. In fact, they're the, they've got some kind of thing that the, the, that Germany is the lender of, of, I don't know if it's called this, but the lender of last resort type of thing. Wherein, uh, once there's no more money from anybody, Germ- it's still going to come from Germany. Uh, I don't know if they've ever finalized that or signed it, but that's one thing that was being talked about and and wanted to have to have Germany agree to that. So naturally, Germany is more carefully watching over this than anyone else, so they can make Germany look bad and and take away from from their own failings in this regard. Now that's the only thing uh, that it comes down to that, and the idea of how they uh, how they make this work for them politically by saying, "Well, we we haven't messed up, and you, the Greek people, there's nothing wrong with you. You deserve the best of everything. It's this uh, system that that Germany is enforcing on us that doesn't work. That you know where we have to follow all these rules that don't fit." the kind of people we are <laughs> and the kind of economy we have and so on and and uh it's demanding too far too demanding but we want to stay with the euro and we want to stay in the european union so some kind of adjustments need to be made and if they're not being made it's because the whole system is too rigid and undemocratic if you want to destroy your the european union if you want to harm the unity of europe if you want to do damage to Germany, then uh, you're going to fall for a lot of these stories and a lot of this talk that I just expressed and the reasons why they do it. You're going to you're going to choose to believe it. You're going to argue on that side and, and and also connect the eurozone with jewelry and international jewelry to such an extent as as though the Greeks are not uh, don't defend Jews and are not anti-Semitic at all, especially communists are not, and Russia is is not either. So, but you, but these people want to kind of see what they what they like and see what they want to see, and talk about it that way. They're not they're not into looking at the 
the absolute facts of the matter. And I've tried to bring that to you tonight uh, in a kind of shortened version. hope I've done a sufficient job to at least uh, disperse some of the uh, illusions you may have had from reading the news. And finally, to close, I want to refer to an article that was at the Daily Stormer on April 9, 2015, titled Greece Goes to Russia, written by Andrew Anglin. And Andrew Anglin, as I said earlier, is is doing quite a strange job of pretending to be a Nazi while taking the side of the Russians on every issue. And he is saying here, he of course takes the side of the Greeks too and is against the, the Germans. And he wrote this article saying that uh, it looks like Syriza is doing one thing right, making nice with Putin. He says, allegedly, Russia giving financial aid to Greece, a country presently being sucked dry by Germany and the Jew banks, was not a topic of discussion. Then he gives excerpts from the news story, and then he writes some more. Uh, But this comment, for him to say that Greece is being sucked dry by Germany, is really shows a, a lot of ignorance and that he just writes things to make a certain impression without knowing anything in depth about it. Of course, as I already mentioned, Germany has given by far the largest portion of the 240 or 50 billion that have already been handed over to Greece and not been repaid for the most part to help it out. But this is supposedly, in his language, uh, being done in order to make a bunch of money for themselves and for the Jews, uh, that they make a whole bunch of money on this from the debt instruments, which is not true, actually, at all. And it's, uh, it's a big expense for, for Germany. Germany is uh, invested in keeping the European Union going. And Andrew Anglin is becoming, has become more and more anti-German as time has gone on, as he has aligned himself so much with, with Russia. And he is saying things that if you are, he never calls himself a national socialist, but he calls himself a Nazi. I make the point of that. He's, I've never known him to call himself a national socialist, although he may have done so in the past, but in a kind of roundabout way. But if you are a real supporter of national socialism and the Third Reich, you would not be hating on today's Germany to the extent that, that he does, because it's still the German people that we're talking about and not just the elites and miracle and so on. And he also then went on to say in his article that Greece being aligned with Russia instead of the EU is a very good thing. He's happy to see that. Well, why is it a very good thing? He doesn't explain that, but he does go on and say, though he calls Cyprus a coward and a shill, for having bowed down completely before the German Jew debt masters earlier this year, but he is under great pressure to deal directly with Russia. Again, that's very hard to understand remark. It doesn't make much sense. Now, but there he goes again with that uh, German Jew connecting the Germans with the Jews. Uh, why, why is it necessary to do that? As though they're in league together trying to destroy Greece. But he doesn't say that Cyprus is a coward in a shell because he is an actual communist. But no, he doesn't ever bring that up. He brings up the fact that he is this because he's 
going along with the German Jew debt masters. He's not standing up to them better. How can he? He can't because he he'd destroy his whole country. That would that would bring on great misery upon all the Greek people. And he's not he's not dumb enough to do that. But Andre Andre Anglin is apparently dumb enough to think that's what should happen. And why is he? Who is he under pressure from? To deal directly with Russia. Who is Cyprus under pressure from? Well, I don't know. He goes on to say the more of Europe that aligns itself with Russia, the better. So he wants Europe to go into the Russian camp. He's very, he's made it very clear here that that's what he's looking for. Uh, I would not agree with that at all. And then make some derogatory comments about Marine Le Pen and her, uh, the weight of her estrogen because he's now on this anti-woman campaign big time and he makes his, he makes even more outrageous statements in that arena than he does in the arena with with Russia and Putin. And then he finishes up without explaining why Cyprus is under great pressure, but he says that Putin is worried about Russia and right now the EU is a threat to Russia and Putin wants these countries to have a pro-Russian stance. Well, of course Putin would want them to have a pro-Russia stance. And he does see the European Union now as being a kind of an enemy because they're, they've uh, put all these uh, sanctions on him. And all of that story, which I can't go into. But obviously, Andrew Anglin wants uh, Russia to be the dominating force in the world today. Well, I can't agree with that, and I can't agree with Anglin. And I have to say that... I would like to say, I don't have to say it, but I'm going to say it, that uh, the daily, his daily stormer has, has, it seems at this point to me that it has had a very deadening effect on the pro-white movement. Uh, just the opposite of what it, I suppose, intended to do. And I say deadening because the whole movement today seems to have become smaller much smaller. I look around and say what's going on and where is it going going on at and there's not much going on and it seems that people are dropping out or becoming inactive maybe because there's just too much emphasis has been put on this one site carrying the ideas of this one man. I work hard and spend a lot of time reading up on issues in depth so I can bring you accurate information and but I would say that nothing like this is done at the Stormer. That when you go there, you're going to get um, the easy answers and the, and just the popular kind of nonsense, one-liner comments and so on. But there's a a lot of activity going on there. But it seems to be uh, what is said as uh, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Well, that's my show for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks very much for listening. And if you uh, have a problem with any of the things I've said, please write a comment in the comment section. But make sure that your comment contains some facts or at least an intelligent opinion based on facts, not just based on conspiracy theories of some kind, like maybe that I'm in league with those Jew bankers too. I'm not going. I'm not interested in things like that, and I don't think that helps the the advance the understanding or uh, between all of us. So uh, don't bother with that. But if you have something that would be considered not stupid, because I'll tell you, my pet peeve. Someone asked me a commenter asked me uh, last week or so 
They said that I was uh, so rude and had such a bad attitude toward people who wrote comments on my website that there must there something was eating away at me. What was eating away at me? Well, I'll tell you what's eating away at me. If it's my intolerance and impatience for stupidity, I really and it's growing. It's growing. Uh, I just can't stand the kind of stupidity that we find on the uh, on the internet so much these days and uh, people say it's just that it's th- that I don't agree with it or they don't agree with me well there are things I don't agree with but I can tell I can distinguish between a comment that's intelligent and one that's not and I'm really fed up with the stupidity on white uh, websites and I'll just say I'll just add that I was happy when I read that someone in the German government, I still haven't determined exactly, they never gave the name, so I'm not exactly sure who it was, but used the word stupid about the Greek claims that were being made. And they said, this is, this, these are stupid. Uh, I thought, I clapped my hands at that. Uh, that's, that's great because that's exactly what they are and it's about time we can call things what they are. And it was great that it was, that it came from a German official in today's government. Just great. So, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, I will say good night. This has been the Heretics Hour on April 13th, 2015. I am Carolyn Yeager, and I will see you again next week for a celebration of Adolf Hitler's birthday. See you then. Good night.